As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. You really get the sense of someone who's trying as best as they can to manage a situation and to manage a person and do whatever they can to not fan the flames of an argument or to not antagonise someone. And obviously she was aware that this couldn't just be a matter of saying, look, I'm done, see you later. While Australia's official mortality rate from COVID-19 remains mercifully low, 
We haven't escaped the other deadly side effect of quarantine that's seen extraordinarily high fatalities all around the world. It is, of course, increased rates of family violence. The clearest and most recent research I could find was this. New South Wales seems to have experienced an increase of around 35% in reports of domestic violence during lockdown. Those numbers come from comparing the New South Wales Police Force crime reports from April 2018 against those from March 2020. Those numbers are on a par with reports from France, Singapore, Germany, Cyprus and Brazil, all reporting increases of around 30 to 40 per cent. Domestic violence reports in Hubei province, the first epicentre of the virus, more than tripled during lockdown in February of this year. Figures out of the UK, though, suggest deaths from domestic violence have more than doubled during COVID-19 restrictions and calls to helplines have increased sevenfold. If you think that's concerning, consider this. Studies show that abusers are more likely to murder their partners after a personal crisis, like losing a job, losing a house, or experiencing a major financial setback. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims, and what happens next. We thought it was timely to discuss a landmark case in Australian criminal history. When Lisa Harnham died in 2011, she had a note in her pocket. It read... There are surveillance cameras inside and outside the house. It's heartbreaking to wonder what she was thinking when she wrote that note and put it in her pocket. Who did she think would end up reading it? Was she right? Lisa Harnham's death changed the way the media in Australia's biggest city thought about and reported domestic violence. And that's a very big deal. Amy Dale was the chief court reporter for Sydney's biggest newspaper at the time, The Daily Telegraph. She covered the murder trial that followed Lisa's death and she wrote an excellent book about it called The Fall. She joins us to tell us about how Lisa's life and death changed the way we think, talk and report about domestic violence in Australia. So initially, to begin with, this was a murder trial that was set down on a certain day and I had sort of knew a little bit about the case from Simon Gatani's early appearances, but a lot of the information that came out in those early couple of days of the trial, as is typical in trials, we didn't know until obviously that opening morning. It was really from the opening morning there was a sense that this was a case really unlike any others that I had seen. We probably could have been doing, and I think a lot of people in the media could have been and probably should have been doing more on domestic violence. There was often a lot of belief, and this is even sort of as recently as less than 10 years ago, that domestic violence was private. It's something that happened behind closed doors. A lot of times when these cases would come up initially as crime stories, it would be like, oh, it's a domestic. So that was almost code for you don't cover it. I think that was sort of slowly starting to change around that time. But I think what really jumped out and stuck with me about this case was that it really, for the first time, put the idea of emotional abuse, of psychological abuse, of that power and control on display for everybody to see. And I think the idea that domestic violence is 
bruises and punches and hits and slaps. It really showed how complex, how deep all the forms of domestic violence can run because that was what was sort of particularly pertinent in this case was that Simon and Lisa's relationship hadn't been physically violent until that morning. But in the the days, the months, the weeks, really the year leading up to that, the relationship had been completely masked in sort of power, control, domination, and also an increasing sense of isolation for Lisa. Tell us about Simon and Lisa. So Lisa was a Canadian young woman. She had come out to Australia a couple of years before she met Simon. She had really wanted to build a life and and an identity for herself in Australia. She had been studying hairdressing and beginning a hairdressing career here. She met Simon when they were due to rent a flat together, almost in a a very platonic flatmate introduction. So they, they sort of had that initial introduction, got on, but in a very friendly way. And then, but within a couple of weeks, the relationship progressed to a romantic one. Simon had had a little bit of a checkered past. He had had a couple of run-ins with the law, not for domestic violence offences, but for one that was the assault of a police officer. And another one was a drug matter that he'd been involved with. At the time, he was running a sort of health supplements company with his brother and had a few sort of family companies underway. He was obviously in a good position financially because the apartment that they subsequently ended up living in Sydney was a very kind of expensive, it's right in Hyde Park, so the centre of Sydney. It's got beautiful sweeping views all over the park. There was some sort of uncertainty around where some of Simon's money was coming from, but it was never sort of explored in detail in the trial. So they sort of had this romantic relationship. They moved in together very quickly, but the problems in the relationship did emerge quite quickly. They sort of started with that intensity also came this emergence of trouble and, and a bit of a struggle. Even within the early weeks and months, Lisa was having some conversations with friends and, and with her mother who was still in Canada about difficulties and needing to kind of get through those sorts of difficulties, which often you would associate those kind of conversations with relationships that have been going for years, often not, it's not typical in the early weeks of a relationship that you talk about that need to kind of get through and work through issues. But the relationship continued to progress. Lisa seemed quite happy. A couple of her friends did meet Simon and seemed a little bit unsure of how she was around him. She did seem quite, they probably wouldn't, the word fearful would probably be too strong, but there certainly was a sense that he was a very commanding presence in her life. They were only about a year into the relationship when they got engaged. It was at Lisa's 30th birthday. Simon organised a very elaborate dinner for her at a restaurant in Parramatta in Sydney's West, where he then did a proposal that was in front of all the friends and family. The video actually ended up being on YouTube and I think then it was subsequently played at the trial And it was actually quite interesting because you really, when you watched it, you really get the sense of everybody who is around her at that moment. Like when this moment is happening, there's all of his friends and family. Like there are none of her friends, none of her family are there. She's very much in his world. Uh, And in a way, kind of being put on the spot with a marriage proposal. That being said, she did also tell her mum that she was excited about the engagement and looking forward to wedding planning. But really things were starting to take a very dark turn. By this stage, you know, she wasn't working. She'd had to give up 
a job that she'd been working at in hairdressing, which was at the directive of Simon to stop working. She was pretty much not seeing any of the friends she'd made. She was still having a lot of contact with her mum, but just through sort of text messages and phone calls. And really throughout the months that followed that, you really started to see her become incredibly isolated to the point that she was essentially captive in the apartment. She wasn't really allowed to leave during the day. Simon organized a personal trainer to come and work with her in a one-on-one setting because he didn't want her going to the gym where men were going to look at her. He had problems with how she dressed. And you can even, in some of the the later photos of Lisa in the period leading up to her death, you can see suddenly she's dressing incredibly, incredibly conservatively. Like all of a sudden her whole dress sense has changed. Uh, She was a very beautiful, very striking woman. She's someone who people would look at on the street. She just had that striking kind of physical, physical appearance, which obviously made him very uncomfortable. And he used to criticize her for almost attracting that level of attention So in those last days of Lisa's life, she was really a prisoner in the apartment. It was at that point that she decided that she needed to go home to Canada, which was something that she didn't want to do. To get permanent residency in Australia was something that was very important to her and something that she talked to her mum a lot about, that it was something that she felt that she really wanted to achieve to say that she'd done it. Simon had been quite threatening about that and had threatened her at times that I could get your visa revoked and you could get kicked back. So Again, that was probably an aspect of domestic violence that we didn't really know. I don't think in the community we knew a lot about even those ideas of immigration abuse and that someone can hold your visa status over you as a way of maintaining that control over you and really weaponizing that uncertainty. So obviously in those last couple of days, things were getting to a very tense moment and Lisa had started to take steps to try to remove herself and get away from Simon and that culminated in her attempting to make plans to go to Canada and that was where things were at on the morning that her death happened. When Lisa was in Canada, you know, she was very close to her mum. She had her really close friends. And then in Australia, it seemed like she was in this gilded cage with Simon. Living this quite, it seems like a quite glamorous life, but he was very particular about how she looked, wasn't he? And And she just seemed just such a beautiful, broken woman because she was quite unwell, wasn't she? Like physically unwell. Yeah. So she had, as a teenager, she'd had some struggles with eating disorders, which she had come out the other side from, and she had been throughout her twenties much healthier. In the time that she was with Simon, he started getting her to work with a trainer to put on weight which was actually done with the intention that she'd been able to fall pregnant because she was probably underweight. Obviously, he imagined that she could have some difficulty falling pregnant, which again is probably another idea of domestic violence that we didn't really, even as recently as less than a decade ago, we really didn't think about ideas of like, even. I mean, the whole time I was covering the trial, the phrase like reproductive coercion was not a phrase that anybody used. So the idea of someone almost trying to have that control of saying like, I'll determine when and how and the circumstances in which she'll fall pregnant. So she'd certainly had a few health and mental health difficulties in her early life, but she was a strong person. And the main reason that she so was living out here was to really establish a kind of an independent, happy, successful life. And I think the phrase that you used, like gilded cage, is a really, yeah, I think that really crystallizes it because 
for a lot of her friends who are in Canada and sort of saw her life in Sydney through Facebook, it was going to sort of, cause they, they often went to the Ivy, you know, sort of quite um, sort of exclusive nightclubs in Sydney or bars. They were obviously living in this very beautiful apartment with sort of beautiful kind of views all over the city. So from that point of view to her friends in Canada, they got the sense that this guy was pretty well off and that they were living this sort of quite sort of living the high life as people might say. But in reality, obviously, that was that life was a prison for Lisa. She really, particularly by the end of her life, had no autonomy as to how where and when she could go, how she could leave the house, what she could wear. She had also become involved in sort of Simon's faith as well. There was some talk at the trial that she had actually found she had taken some solace in learning more about the Catholic faith, but obviously every part of her life in Sydney, the terms and conditions of that life were set by Simon. I couldn't imagine having to live like that. And I think those concepts, as you said, of like reproductive coercion and even the fact that he proposed to her in a public place in front of people is really manipulative as well because it puts you on the spot. I always think, God, that would be my worst nightmare if my husband had done that to me or, I know, you know, but I thought, God, imagine that. So it's just, it does paint this overall picture of a really unhealthy, destructive relationship. So in their last few days, what was happening between them? Their relationship was probably starting to become increasingly tense and combative. They were having a lot of arguments. This was A lot of this was sort of detailed in text messages that were all sort of tended to the court and you really got to see that things were not in a good place. Simon was becoming increasingly rude and demanding in text messages He also had a habit where he tended to, he recorded a lot. Like obviously there's the cameras, which obviously I imagine we'll we'll turn to that, but this was on his phone. He actually often recorded a lot of phone conversations. So there was one conversation that was played to the court of them sort of just having a conversation like in their bedroom one night. And you, you really get the sense with Lisa of someone who's trying as best as they can to manage a situation and to manage a person and do whatever they can to not fan the flames of an argument or to not antagonize someone. So in those kind of days leading up to when she died, Lisa had obviously started to take steps to get away from Simon. And obviously she was aware that this couldn't just be a matter of saying, look, I'm done. See you later. It was had to be something that was done with a very, very high degree of planning she had been using the personal trainer and also this life coach who Simon had put her in touch with. Both of those people kind of came and saw Lisa at home. So there was never a sense that you, Lisa couldn't go and meet them. It was always they had to come to the house and it was always a very set time and everything like that. And one of the women had suggested to Lisa, you know, why don't we go for a walk or something like that? And it was like, no, Simon is not going to be comfortable if we go out for a walk. It's you have to follow the the routine, which is that they came and visited her at the house. And so, but using the help of those two women who she had obviously been confiding in about the nature of the relationship, she had started to take some steps to remove herself. So that included getting a couple of clothes together in a bag and putting them in a storage unit, which was in Bono Junction, so a suburb that's sort of about kind of maybe 15 minutes or so away from where they were living. So she'd started to move a few things away. Obviously, she had to be very careful because she was aware that Simon had monitoring on her phone all throughout their apartment. There were cameras. So there was such a high degree of surveillance on her that she had to be 
so careful with what she was doing. She obviously, even though Simon had put her in touch with these women, he obviously started getting very angry about what he saw as their influence on her. So whether or not he picked up that she was starting to assert some more independence, he then attributed that to the relationships that she had with these two women, who was another woman called Lisa and another trainer called Michelle. And so then that he was saying that those relationships have to end. And there were a couple of pretty aggressive, rude messages that were sent to both of those women. The messages were sent from Lisa's phone, but it had been suggested in court that they were probably composed by Simon and then sent from Lisa's phone because the the messages were very aggressive as to how sort of you've, you've been so rude and you're trying to ruin my relationship and Simon is a wonderful person. So how dare you be trying to come in and destroy everything that we've got? Obviously, the messages were completely at odds with the the conversations that she was having with them and the help that they were giving to her to sort of start to take those initial steps to to find a, to make a break and to leave him. It's often said now that we have a lot more awareness that the most dangerous time for women in violent relationships is just before they leave and after they leave, isn't it? Mm. If you would like to speak to someone about issues raised in this podcast, you can call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. Thank you to our wonderful patrons for helping us keep Australian true crime going. Narelle Rivers, Aaron Martin, Azad, Abby Grimshaw, Abby Pardo, Adam Curry, Adelaide Owen and Admiral Thrawn. You can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Pod. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Coming up on Australian True Crime, we hear about the star witness in the case against Simon Gatani. But first, Lisa Harnham had made some decisions about her future and started putting a plan together with the help of a small support network. Amy Dale picks up the story. On the final morning, which was late July 2011, so this was in the days after she had taken those steps to start to remove some items from the house, 
she was in more contact with her mum who lives sort of just outside of Toronto in Canada. And she said, she actually reached out to her mum, Joan, and said, you know, mummy, can you come and get me? And Joan was doing everything she can, but obviously, I mean, in terms of getting from Canada to Australia, it was going to be a couple of days before Joan was going to be able to get to Sydney. So they had started to work out a plan instead that rather Joan coming to Australia, it was that Lisa would go to Canada. And they even started to plan it out that they could get a flight from Sydney to Hawaii, have a couple of days in Hawaii to kind of recharge and shed themselves from this really tense, awful period and then sort of return home to Canada through Niagara Falls. So it was let's have a sort of restorative holiday and really start to bring Lisa back to normal. So they obviously they were having quite a, a number of conversations and really getting into the planning of Lisa returning to Canada. And obviously Lisa at that point had accepted that that could potentially jeopardise her plans to get residency in Australia which I think also shows that by that final day or two, it was that realisation that like, no, I have to get away from this guy. And even if that means that I have to put some of these dreams on hold, I now need to get away from him because this is starting to be a threat to my life. So she and Joan were having a number of conversations through text, but also email because Joan was looking up the airlines to see when was the earliest they could put her on a flight to get back to Canada They believed that obviously because Simon had access to the online search history that that was possibly in the early hours of that morning he had woken up and seen the search history and obviously picked up that there were plans underway to book Lisa a flight and get her back to Canada. So then they Lisa woke up. They then, in Simon's account, they did have an argument and then this is where the surveillance element of this case probably really starts to come into play. So Lisa then at that point didn't even bother about packing a bag. She really just grabbed a handbag and tried to get out of the apartment. This is a 15-storey apartment. She got halfway out the front door and then CCTV camera recorded. Simon pulled her back in and how he did it is he put his hand sort of over her mouth and her throat and pulled her back in. That was the last image of Lisa that was ever taken. It was just over a minute, so 69 seconds after that camera recorded that, she was dead. So she had, in that time, fallen from the 15-storey apartment to the pavement below, which killed her instantly. There was a number of people who were outside the building at that time because the apartment building had a cafe that was on the ground floor. It was a Saturday morning So a lot of people were at the cafe, so they witnessed it. Obviously, people tried to rush and and give first aid, knowing it was a hopeless situation to try to save her, but people doing everything they can to try and and help. And then shortly after that, Simon ran outside. He had like boxer shorts on and he was like, how could she do this? How could she do this? What's just happened? And so obviously the initial suggestion seemed to be that she'd committed suicide, that it had been a deliberate jump. Then Simon's story had shifted that she had made the steps to climb over the balcony because they were having this fight and she was trying to get away. So she went onto the balcony and started to climb over it and that she'd fallen. So that was his version as to what had happened. Crucially in that time and probably really what made all the difference between this case going to him being charged with murder, him going to trial, him being convicted of murder, 
really how that came to be was that there was a witness in the park across the road who actually was the person who had witnessed what had happened from the apartment building. And he really is what separated this case from being something that may have always had an ambiguity and doubt as to that he could have been involved to the police really being able to build a case that Simon had been responsible for throwing Lisa from the balcony. Simon did try to build up a real picture of Lisa as being suicidal, didn't he? Yes, and he tried to... So Simon gave evidence in his trial, which is not particularly common in murder trials. Often people who are charged with murder often won't take the stand, but Simon did. And so Simon, in his version of events to the court, did try to paint a picture of Lisa as being unstable. He also tried to paint a picture of their relationship in that she was just as obsessed with monitoring him as he was with her. So almost his explanation was it was an unhealthy relationship. We were both sort of equally culpable in in building an unhealthy relationship and of surveillance and monitoring. So that was the version of events that he had put forward. The other thing that he had put forward was that he did acknowledge that he had pulled her back. I mean, he really had no way to explain that other than to acknowledge that, yes, he had pulled her back. However, his version was that after he had pulled her back, she had briefly calmed down. He had gone to the kitchen to put the kettle on to make her a cup of tea. And it was when he was in the kitchen beginning that preparation of the tea that she had then gone towards the balcony and started trying to take sort of steps, like and started to move over and put her hands on the glass of the balcony and move over. It became quite critical how he had described it because he had talked about that she'd sort of almost leaned over the balcony, but obviously that meant she had to put her hands there and that she'd climbed over. That became quite relevant because the fingerprint experts could not find any trace that Lisa had left these sorts of fingerprints. And I do remember quite clearly the the lady who was a fingerprint expert gave the evidence saying that the type of surface it was, it was a glass balcony, means that if it had happened, as he said he would happen, we would have to imagine that there would be some trace of her fingerprints on the balcony if she had climbed over in the manner that he'd suggested. So he had said that she had done that and she'd started trying to climb over and that she had sort of fallen to, there was a kind of an awning below their apartment that was obviously connected to the apartment that was just below theirs. He said that she'd gone to that and that he had then started trying to take steps to lean over and try and get her, but it was too difficult. It was too far for him to reach and that she'd slipped and fallen the rest of the way. Who were some of the people that gave evidence in the case for the prosecution and also for the defence? A lot of the witnesses for the prosecution were those sort of several people who had been dining at the cafe that was underneath the apartment building, as well as a few people who were bystanders to the event. Where the apartment building is, is right near a train station in Sydney. So there had been two men who had been doing some work outside the train station. One of them gave evidence that he heard almost what he described, he thought was a bird, almost like a squawking noise or something. That evidence came from him that there had been some noise or some commotion that had come from the balcony. A lot of people who were witnesses at the cafe obviously didn't see her fall or from what had happened above, but sort of were more witnesses to Simon's reaction when he ran outside. A few of them gave evidence that they found his reaction quite strange, including someone who was a witness who was having breakfast at the cafe, but happened to be a doctor. 
and he he found Simon's reaction quite strange. Obviously, someone who has had quite a lot of experience with frontline grief found his quite casual, almost dismissive reaction to like, oh, that's my fiance, didn't appear to be distraught or overcome with anguish. So those witnesses were sort of the scene set of witnesses. We heard also from the personal trainer and the life coach, Lisa and Michelle, who had sort of been working with Lisa in those few weeks leading up to her death. There was also the fingerprint expert who was very crucial in talking about and I suppose helping to poke holes and establish doubt in Simon's case about how the balcony scene had unfolded because she was the person who could say that Simon's description of events didn't align with the fingerprints or the absence of fingerprints on the balcony. For Simon's case, they also, obviously he gave evidence and he was the main witness in his own defence. They had also called some doctors who had had some sort of dealings and consultations with Lisa. There was seemingly, I think, a bizarre line of inquiry to suggest that Lisa had had some kind of promiscuity. It almost seemed to be trying to elicit evidence of that whether or not she'd had an STD or something as though it was some kind of to establish that, well, yes, Simon was monitoring her. And there was often an illusion that there had been from Simon's, in Simon's defence, there was often this case put forward by the defence that something had happened in their relationship that had breached trust and so it was almost to try to explain that, yes, he was monitoring her but there was some sort of attempt at justifying it through something that had happened. So there weren't that many witnesses in his case but the prosecution really did build a very meticulous case of the scene set of witnesses who had been at the cafe in and around that part of the Sydney CBD on that morning, scientific evidence through the fingerprint, and then also the evidence of the two women in particular, Lisa and Michelle, who had had that contact with Lisa in the sort of days and weeks leading up to her death. This had a huge amount of media attention, so I knew you were right in the thick of it. Was it packed with onlookers and, and media? Yes, it was always almost from the first day of the trial, there was a very heavy media contingent and that didn't let up for the entire duration of the trial. There were also like the, the public gallery was packed every day by sort of by the midpoint of the trial, the people who wanted to come and just be observers in the public gallery had to queue for an hour plus to be able to get into the court and guarantee a seat. So it was was really unlike anything that I had ever witnessed and also just the level of community interest in it. By the time this case was on in court, I'd done full-time court reporting for quite a number of years. Most of the time, my sort of friends and family weren't really that interested and I think just thought my job was sort of depressing and bleak and weird. But this was a particular case that everybody was like, oh, are you covering that trial? Like there was such an obsession about it. It probably got more front pages and prominent media coverage, not just in the telly, the paper I was working for, but the other newspapers, TV, often criminal trials have peaks of media coverage. They don't tend to be consistently covered right from day one to the very end. Often there's a bit of an ebb and the media show moves on to someone, someone else in another trial. But with this case, it was just every single day there was almost more interest. It was like there was no story you could do that wouldn't then result in another new group of people coming coming in the next day to observe. There was probably some 
This case was was different because there was also no jury, so it was a judge alone trial. So I think some of the the miscellaneous show around it, like Simon's new girlfriend who turned up and was initially quite friendly with the media and very chatty and would talk a lot, but then over time as the case went on turned more combative towards the media. A lot of that was also taken in and shown as part of the coverage where normally when it's a jury trial you're under much tighter restrictions as to what you can report and you're not ever really giving anything away of what's happening outside but because this trial was judged alone there was almost within the coverage there was also more of a awareness as to how high profile it was becoming. Is the reason it was a judge alone was that Simon's choice? There were kind of a few reasons for it and now in New South Wales a defendant can apply for a judge alone trial and if the Crown doesn't have a problem with it it really can just proceed as a judge alone trial and it is becoming increasingly taken up that the people will have judge alone trials instead of jury trials. This one was a little different. So Simon was had legal representation that had fallen through. He was then trying to seek new legal representation. He was starting to run out of money. And so he had said to the court that he could sort of secure enough funding to have a lawyer for four weeks six weeks, which was the estimated length of a jury trial, meant that at a point he would lose legal representation. He'd have to represent himself, which is obviously in a criminal trial, particularly a murder trial, when someone is facing the possibility of more than 20 years in jail. You do not want to have a situation where someone has to represent themselves. And obviously, because you can cut down a little bit of time by having judge alone trials, you don't have to send juries in and out for legal argument. You can do it in a more streamlined way. So that was one component The other component, which also lent itself as to why the Crown, the prosecution didn't have an issue with it being judge alone, was the key witness in the case, Josh Rathmel, was moving overseas. So if they were to try to delay the trial for Simon to try and raise more money to get lawyers who could see it through, you were facing the trial being adjourned to the following year. By that point, Josh was going to be living overseas. It was going to be more difficult in trying to get him to come back to Australia to give evidence. Obviously, for the prosecution, they didn't want there to be any risk that Josh's evidence would not be able to be heard given it was so pivotal to the case. So those were really like the two sort of complementing reasons from both the prosecution and defence as to why the case proceeded as a judge alone trial. From the time of Lisa's death to when it got to trial, how long was that? Lisa died in July 2011 and Simon was arrested and charged within a couple of days. So it wasn't a case where the police investigation, you know, dragged out. He was really sort of within the week he'd been charged. Then it went to trial in October 2013. So about a two-year turnaround, which in New South Wales, that's pretty standard. He was initially denied bail and then several months after his arrest, he successfully applied for bail, which is in a case like this, at the time, it was not necessarily unusual for someone who was facing this sort of charge to receive bail when it concerned someone who was charged with domestic violence murder. There was no fear that Simon presented a danger to the community and he had a lot of conditions around very constant reporting, giving up a passport, those sorts of things. So he was on bail really for most of that time and then he remained on bail throughout the trial. He just It was shortly before the verdict they took him back into custody because at that point they go, well, if ever someone is going to be at a flight risk, it's at the point where they know that the verdict's approaching and they could be about to be convicted. So 
he was then taken into custody. So when he heard the verdict, which was in November 2013, by that point he was back in custody. You mentioned his girlfriend. He had a new girlfriend who was appearing with him every day in court. Rochelle Louise was her name. Rochelle was very attractive. There were similarities in looks between her and Lisa. I think a lot of people were very fascinated by Rochelle. What did you find out about Rochelle and and what was your take on that whole, it seemed like a bit of a circus really around her and Simon? It did almost from the first day because she turned up supporting Simon from the very first day of the trial there was obviously the initial eyebrows being raised that there was quite a similarity between her and Lisa physically. She was actually initially very friendly with media, quite chatty, didn't seem to really understand that, yes, there was a lot of interest in the case, knew that they were going to get photographed arriving to court and leaving court in the afternoon. And she was at that point very comfortable with it. Towards the end, I don't know whether or not they had started to feel maybe a fear that things hadn't gone as they had hoped and maybe the trial hadn't gone the way that they had wanted to. It turned more, it it sort of, the tension came into it. They no longer were as comfortable with filming. They started to become more combative with media, really culminating. But by the end of the case, so by the verdict and the sentencing, she had really turned on the media and really held the media responsible for the way that Simon had been portrayed. Let's talk about Josh. He was a witness and he was crucial. Who's Josh and what did he see? Josh Rathmill worked for the ABC in a sort of editing and production capacity. And so he was walking to work at the ABC on that morning. And so he was walking through the park to get towards where the ABC is. He was the person who was initially distracted almost by the noise and commotion at what was happening. So he looked out over the park. He was walking inside the park quite near to the footpath and road, which was across the road from the apartment building. He looked up and he saw this commotion unfolding and he saw a man, he could sort of see that this man was very angry, judging by his, so he was making quite sharp, sudden, violent movements. He was shouting. His actual initial reaction to it was that he thought, his words. He thought it was a junkie trying to throw rubbish from a window because he became aware of this man holding something that looked like a like a black dark object because Lisa had dark clothing on and she had quite long dark hair. So he thought that it was someone who was a drug user coming down off some sort of drug episode trying to throw rubbish in like a big black rubbish bag off the balcony. So that's what he he sort of described it as an unloading, that it was the man was there and it was his movement that like removed that object from his hand and watched it and watched it fall. And as he approached and got to near the corner, obviously the commotion a short time later, he became aware that it had been a body, not um, not an object. So he got to work and he'd obviously had processed what he'd seen and so then he made subsequently made the contact with police and said, hey, this is what I've seen. So obviously his, his evidence was incredibly important because really he had been the only one that had been able to witness, apart from Simon and Lisa, who was no longer here to tell her story, Josh had been the only person who had actually seen what had happened on the balcony and he was very strong and very unwavering in how he described it in terms of this unloading of an object which he then subsequently found out had been Lisa's body so he he was also a very convincing witness in a way because he wasn't 
he wasn't dogged. A lot of witnesses tend to become almost defensive in what they've seen and they almost take attempts to sort of poke holes and speculate as to what they've seen. Sometimes you'll see witnesses almost take it personally as though you're making an affront to their honesty. But Josh was incredibly matter-of-fact and he actually did acknowledge, he's like, you know, I do obviously have to accept that there's a possibility that what I've seen was incorrect, but I don't think I'm incorrect. And the judge actually made comments about Josh's honesty as a witness and almost showing that his honesty almost shined through in him saying, look, maybe I am wrong, but I'm just telling you that this is what I've, what I've seen. So there was no, no politics in his, there was no spin. There was nothing. There was no story he was trying to get, get across. It was, he was purely just saying, this is what I saw. I, exchanged a couple of messages with him after the trial um, and he was very he didn't want to do any media afterwards he was obviously approached by a number of people including me to give an interview he never wanted to he purely saw it and he had communicated as such that he saw it that it was his duty as a citizen to tell the court what he'd seen and to him that was it he didn't want to take any part in anything that subsequently happened from from there so in terms of a of a incredible of a credible eyewitness, you probably couldn't have had anyone stronger than Josh. And it would have been incredibly hard for him from the time of seeing that happen to then getting to trial. And he obviously had plans for his life, mm. you know, to move overseas. So it's really impressive. Mm. Um, and and as you said, so without his testimony, what do you think would have happened? I think they, um, the judge, uh, Lucy McCallum, Justice Lucy McCallum said in handing down the verdict that really if she hadn't accepted Josh's account, that Simon would have to be acquitted. So it really was his version of events and his testimony was incredibly important. And I think for the prosecution, they were aware that obviously Josh was by no means the only element of their case, but he was certainly such a pivotal plank of it that really without him, there probably was a lot of other evidence that pointed to Simon's guilt, but really Josh was such a a crucial part of it because he really was the only person who was able to give a balanced, unfiltered, honest account of what he'd seen. What sentence did Simon get? So Simon was sentenced to, it was a total 26-year term, so it was an 18-year non-parole period, then a balance of term, a parole period of eight years. Uh, And an eight-year parole period is actually quite long, and the judge said that the reason for that was because Simon's family and friends refused to accept that he'd done anything wrong, she really believed that he would need a lot of help in in rehabilitating himself because everyone around him was completely dogged and strident in his innocence and that he was the victim, that it would obviously take a lot of time for Simon to really be completely rehabilitated back into the community. And did has he appealed his sentence? He did appeal. So he appealed a couple of years after the trial Uh, The appeal actually centred on the reliability or, in their case, the lack of reliability of Josh Rathmel. So that was really the only ground of their appeal. Simon would have had more difficulty in appeal than a lot of other people trying to appeal murder convictions because he had had a judge alone trial and the judge had given such long and detailed reasons as to why she was finding him guilty beyond reasonable doubt that some of those appeal grounds that often rely more on directions to the jury, summing up to the jury, prosecutor behaviour toward the jury. Obviously, none of those could apply in Simon's case. So it was a very narrow appeal based on Josh Rathmill being an unreliable witness uh, and it was unsuccessful. 
When did you feel the tide really turning from your perspective in your professional life about when things started to really change around family violence and the response from authorities and the society to it? I think it was actually around that time, so that 2013-2014 period. So that was, there was Simon Gantani's case. That was when the murder of Luke Batty happened around that time in Queensland, there was also the murder trial of for Gerard Baden-Clay for his wife, Alison. So I think it was around that time there were, lot, there were instances of family violence, domestic violence that I think made people think we can't keep ignoring this. And I think from a media perspective, it was we can't just keep saying, oh, this is just, it's, it's a domestic and so we leave it alone. It was no, we had a duty to report it and I mean for the prevalence of domestic violence means it's sort of inexcusable to not be covering it and I think through a variety of those cases it also blew open and shattered the idea the very narrow idea of what people thought domestic violence was they thought it was someone goes and has too many drinks at the pub and goes home and hits their wife Um, and it was really showing that the, the breadth of domestic violence, the psychological control, the power, sexual kind of control, reproductive control, immigration, economic and financial control and abuse of someone. So I think it was really around that time that people started to have a more nuanced um, sense of the complexity and the scope of what domestic violence looks like who it happens to, I think that was as sort of Rosie Batty so eloquently stated after the murder of her son is that people think, oh, you live in a nice house or you live on a nice street, that this won't happen to you and showing that it can happen to anyone from any background, from any walk of life and also manifest in so many different forms as well. Thank you to Amy Dale, who is the author of the excellent book, The Fall, about the life and death of Lisa Harnham. If you'd like to read more of Amy's work, you'll need to subscribe to the Law Society Journal, where she's currently a staff writer. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.